Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 27th, 2017. Light episode today. We're going to mix it up a little bit. Check in with Phil Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to, you know, open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is being put out there is far from biblical, far from sound, and like all part of what we have. <laughs> Note that what Scripture describes as what's called the great apostasy. By the way, the Greek word apostasia means rebellion. There is a lot of rebellion in the body of Christ today, um, and it's just a complete mess. Now, a while back, I, I did a teaching on the book of Jude and talked about the three kind of prototypes of major false doctrines or false teachers or heretics. Uh, the, the book of Jude describes uh, Korah's rebellion, talks about Balaam and Cain. Yeah, those are the three fellows that are mentioned in the book of Jude. And uh, what we're going to listen to today is a sermon delivered by Phil Johnson uh, yeah, f- really good friend of mine, Phil Johnson. He's a Reformed Baptist minister, and uh, you, you may know him. He works with John MacArthur. And uh, Phil Johnson recently delivered a sermon on Korah's Rebellion. And what's fascinating is I've actually heard him preach on this text at uh, a conference that he and I spoke at years ago. And uh, and he has, he's going to talk about the fact that he doesn't actually teach on this anymore when he's on the road and the, and the reason why. But I find this to be a very timely message, a very, very timely and important message, because um, the spirit of rebellion, and we're not talking like something like the spirit of Jezebel or something. We're not talking about an actual demonic spirit. We're talking about kind of like the... Um, uh, the, uh, the 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 paradigm that we find ourselves the the framework the mental um, uh, you know how do I describe this properly you know the framework that we are all working from as Americans if you would um, it it is steeped in rebellion and uh, recent events on the news current history and things like that kind of flesh this out and this spirit of rebellion this mindset of rebellion has uh, it has permeated even the church and Christians are embracing it and it's a real problem and so uh, I think that Phil Johnson does a fine job of kind of fleshing this out exegeting the biblical text in the book of numbers and I uh, found it to be worthy of passing along to you so without any further ado let's get into it here is Phil Johnson's uh, sermon on Korah's rebellion here we go 
I'm sure you've noticed over the past couple of years, there's been an increasing trend in our culture where law enforcement officers are generally treated with scorn and villainized while, you know, the same voices bend over backwards to justify angry protesters and violent lawbreakers. And just in the last two weeks alone, we've seen the dangerous effects of this in several ways. Last weekend, of course, a violent right-wing protester purposely drove his car into a crowd of leftist counter-protesters, killed one and severely injured others. And then Friday night, in three separate incidents, six policemen were shot. One of them was killed, two of them were killed, and the others were critically injured. And I am convinced that the increase we're seeing in incidents like those That is the bitter fruit of our country's veneration of rebellion. Rebellion is one of the hallmarks of our age. In the 1960s, it was my generation who engineered the youth rebellion, and it started with matters of style, haircuts and music that our parents didn't like, and it gained momentum with the protests against the war in Vietnam, the most unpopular war America has ever had ever been engaged in, and By the end of the 1960s, the glorification of rebellion was a major theme in movies and novels and art and music and every other expression of popular culture. And every generation since has seemed to adopt the attitude that there's something inherently noble about rebellion and something sinister about authority. And so now a spirit of rebellion permeates our culture so much that even among many evangelicals, resistance to authority has been romanticized and celebrated so passionately and for so long that it has begun to spill into the church. And there are now websites, blogs, and bulletin boards run by people who profess to be Christians where public accusations against pastors and other church leaders are openly solicited and they depict every incident of church discipline as abusive, and they encourage hostility and defiance against any person in authority. They'll take any complaint against a person in authority on board, but they push back strongly against anyone who says a word of defense in defense of the person who is in a position of leadership. And they firmly believe that their resistance to authority is both noble and heroic. Now, to be fair, this contempt for authority is not a 20th century novelty. Contempt for the very idea of authority is one of the common expressions of human fallenness. All sin is an expression of rebellion against God's authority. He is the lawgiver, and 1 John 3 verse 4 says, sin is the transgression of the law. So all sin has in it a a spirit of rebellion, and the theme of rebellion is written across the pages of human history. It's also a major theme in the Old Testament. You know, the people of Israel rebelled against God so repeatedly and so much that Hebrews 3 speaks of those 40 years in the wilderness under Moses' leadership as the rebellion. In Hebrews 3, verses 8 and 9, God says, "'Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness.'" where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. And one incident in that era of Old Testament history that Hebrews calls the rebellion, one incident epitomizes Israel's rebellion, I think, more vividly than any other, and it was the mutiny that was led by Korah, Numbers 16. And so I want you to turn there with me. We'll look at this whole chapter, Numbers 16. This is the record of Korah's rebellion. And it was a landmark event in Israel's history. It established once and for all in the national consciousness of Israel what God thinks of rebellion. This whole account is a prototype of all rebellion. Virtually every church I've ever known has seen one or more incidents of rebellion that follow the very same pattern you see here. In years past, I used to sometimes preach on Korah's rebellion when I was a guest speaker in churches here and there, and I stopped doing that because every time I did it, someone would come to me and say, our pastor put you up to that, didn't he? (laughs) You know, you described 
exactly the circumstances of this conflict in our church. And the truth is, I never would have preached on that passage as a guest speaker if I knew someone would think that I was surreptitiously taking sides in a conflict that I wasn't even involved in. But as I learned, this pattern is so common that there is hardly a Christian anywhere who hasn't seen this pattern in the church. Number 16. By the way, this passage is referred to in the New Testament in Jude 11, where Jude describes heretics as those who perish in the rebellion of Korah. And there, Jude reminds the church that rebellion against legitimate spiritual authority is despised by God in the church as much as it was in national Israel. And Jude reminds us that the kind of rebellion Korah led and stirred up lies at the root of all false teaching. He connects it with heresy. Not to say that rebellion is inherently heretical, but to say that at the root of all heresies, it begins with rebellion. So rebellion or a rebellious attitude inevitably corrupts sound doctrine and leads to spiritual decline among the people of God. And every time I've ever known anyone to lead a rebellion or to rebel against legitimate authority, spiritual authority, they always do it under the guise of reformation, you know, in the name of correcting and strengthening the church. But the fact is, no genuine revival or reformation has ever been sparked by rebellion. Now, every time I've ever made that point, someone will always raise the question of the Protestant Reformation. Wasn't that a massive rebellion against established spiritual authority? Wasn't the Protestant Reformation the most significant post-apostolic reformation of all, wasn't that the fruit of Luther's rebellion against the Pope? Because, let's face it, Luther did say some things about the Pope that, you know, sound awfully rebellious. So wasn't the Reformation just a big rebellion? That's what the Pope would like you to think. The fact is, rebellion was not the goal or the driving principle of either the forerunners of the Reformation, men like Wycliffe and Tyndall, or or the magisterial reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and others, none of them had any intention to divide the church. That wasn't their goal. They wanted to see reformation in the church, and they were calling an apostate church and a corrupt priesthood back to submission to the true Lord of the church and the authority of his word. And Luther and the other magisterial reformers were not a group of petulant or disgruntled people driven by a spirit of rebellion. No, they were driven by a profound sense of submission to the true head of the church, Jesus Christ. They were calling a rebellious and wayward ministerium back to submission. And the Protestant Reformation did not grow out of rebellion. It grew out of Luther's proclamation of Scripture. He didn't set out to overthrow papal authority. His 95 theses were basically a Bible study on the theme of repentance, and it was not a screed against the Pope. Luther didn't gather a faction and try to divide the congregation. He simply preached the Word of God courageously, and he was excommunicated by a Pope who was himself in rebellion against the authority of Scripture. And that's quite a different thing, and I know the difference might seem subtle to some people who only look at history superficially, but that's actually quite a different thing from sponsoring a church split because you don't like the style of music or the color of the carpet or the personality of the preacher. There is indeed a time when Christians should stand and say, we must obey God rather than men, but the motive there is submission to God, not merely resistance to human authority. And and if you're in a position to do that, you must also accept the penalty, whether it's excommunication by a corrupt priesthood or prison at the behest of a wicked, evil ruler, it's still not your right to usurp the authority and power and take authority for yourself by rebellion. If, If it's legitimate when we take a stand, our speech and our behavior should have nothing of the aroma of rebellion in it. In fact, I would say that's where Luther erred. His biggest mistake was certain things he said with his mouth that sounded purposely insulting and rebellious, and it undermined his cause, frankly. But the issue at stake when 
we're talking about true reformation should not be something as mundane as a petty quarrel about who gets to teach in the women's ministry. And as far as I know, there's no conflicts at Grace Church. That's why I felt free to bring this up now, because I don't think, as far as I know, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. My point is, the Protestant Reformation was not sparked by an act of rebellion, but by the faithful preaching of God's Word. In fact, Luther was excommunicated for standing on biblical principle, not for resisting authority. He said all along that he would have conceded everything else to the Pope if the Pope had simply affirmed the gospel. In his commentary on Galatians, 18 years after the 95 Theses were nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Luther wrote this, quote, All we aim for is that the glory of God should be preserved and that the righteousness of faith should remain pure and sound. Once this has been established, namely, that God alone justifies us solely by His grace through Christ, if the Pope would agree with that, we're willing not only to bear the Pope aloft on our hands, but also to kiss His feet. So the Protestant Reformation, again, wasn't sparked by an act of rebellion. It was faithfulness to the principle of justification by faith, faithfulness to the true gospel that motivated Luther. True Reformation is never carried out by means of rebellion, and rebellion inevitably weakens and never strengthens the church. That was Jude's point when he likened the false teachers of his day to the rebels who followed Korah in Moses' time. Jude 11 speaks of those who perished in Korah's rebellion. That's the verse. And the King James Version of that verse calls it the gainsaying of Korah. That word translated gainsaying is antilogia, which speaks of contradiction or rebellion or dispute. It, it literally means to speak against someone. And that is precisely what Korah is best remembered for. He spoke against Moses. He sowed the seeds of rebellion in Israel, and the mutiny that he began was ultimately responsible for the destruction of many lives. So here's the lesson we learn from Korah. God hates rebellion. God despises those who defy authority that he has established. Rebellion against leaders that God has put in place is tantamount to rebellion against God himself. Now, this is a particularly hard lesson for Americans to swallow. We live in a nation that was founded in the wake of a rebellion against England. We have enshrined rebellion as virtually a desirable thing, and particularly, as I said, in in my generation and after, egalitarian values are so deeply ingrained in our thinking that we sometimes forget that the God we worship rules with a rod of iron. And he despises those who scorn authority. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 13 that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And yet, rebellion holds a a seemingly irresistible temptation, and especially for people in a society like ours, where rebels are glorified and authority is generally despised. And like I said, this chapter, number 16, is a kind of prototype of the worst kind of spiritual rebellion. Here we see a man who pretends to represent truth and justice and equity, standing against God-ordained authority and fomenting a rebellion that finally destroyed him and everybody else who followed him. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And in this incident, Korah and everybody who followed him reaped the bitter fruit of their rebellion, judgment, because God judges rebellion. And as we look at this text this morning, I want you to see that a pattern unfolds. Like I keep saying, this incident is the prototype for the worst kind of spiritual rebellion, And every church I've ever been a part of has seen this kind of rebellion at one time or another. It's a very common pattern. And nothing is more destructive to the community of God's people than this kind of mutiny against God-ordained authority, because it always comes under the guise of righteousness. It always pretends to be in defense of what is right, 
but it really sows doubt and confusion and distrust and division. And because it's a direct attack on authority that has been ordained by God, it's a sin against God Himself. And in Korah's case, God punished this rebellion immediately, directly, in a a most dramatic fashion. God's attitude towards this sort of rebellion is, by this incident, made very clear as early as possible in Israel's history. And all the typical marks of sinful rebellion are present in this account, and I want to point them out to you as we go along. So you've turned to number 16. Let me read just the first three verses to start with. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, "'You have gone too far.'" For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, I'll stop there, and let me just point out the first mark of this kind of rebellion. is point number one, if you want to take down the outline. The agitators are influential leaders. The agitators here are influential leaders. Korah was a Levite. That means he was a member of the priestly tribe. And not only that, he was in a position to be one of the Levites' most influential leaders. This verse says, his father was Izhar, son of Kohath. According to Exodus 6, verses 18 through 21, Izhar's brother was Amram, and Amram was the father of Moses. So that made Korah Moses' first cousin. And look at verse 1 again. It also mentions Dathan, Abiram, and On, whom it says are sons of Reuben. So you really have two factions here. Korah is an influential Levite, and Dathan, Abiram, and On are leaders of the tribe of Reuben. They evidently formed a confederacy to carry out this rebellion. Here's an interesting fact. If you study the layout of Israel's camp, Korah and the Kohathites were situated on the same side of the tabernacle as the Reubenites. They were neighbors. So this rebellion undoubtedly hatched from a plot that grew out of idle conversations where people in that community, that little part of the larger tribe of Israel, this one little community, people venting their dissatisfactions to one another. And these were not merely obscure and significant people, but men who were leaders in their tribes. They were men of distinction and prominence, men whose own leadership gifts were substantial, very likely men with great leadership abilities, natural abilities, men who had earned the people's respect. And apparently they were also very good at recruiting others with great leadership abilities to their cause, because verse 2 says, by the time this rebellion broke out into the open, the first thing Moses and Aaron knew about it, there were already 250 chiefs of the congregation involved, well-known men. And they sinfully used their influence to spread this rebellion among the multitudes before it ever came to Moses and Aaron. So that's the first mark of the typical sinful rebellion. The agitators are influential leaders. Here's a second characteristic to watch out for. Number two, their complaint is believable. Their complaint is believable. Look again at verse three. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, Who put you in charge? What gives you the right to tell the rest of us what to do? They accused Moses of setting himself above the rest of the people. You want all the power. You call all the shots. What makes you so special? Who made you to be a a ruler and a judge over us? They were simply calling for a little democracy. They're complaining that it was unfair for Moses to be elevated above everybody else because, after all, no vote had ever been taken. 
No general consensus had ever been reached on the question of whether Moses was the most qualified man to lead the Israelites. And all of that is is true. There had never been a vote to ratify Moses' leadership. He wasn't elected to office by the people. They had never formally consented to his rule. And Korah's goal in making an issue of this was to get the people to doubt whether Moses was really the best man for the job. And you remember, Moses himself had told the Lord that he wasn't the best man for the job. He was slow of speech and perhaps not the best person to be a political leader. He'd been in a high position of politics in Egypt, but he left that, became a shepherd for 40 years. And evidently, Korah had some of the personal charisma that Moses lacked because Korah had no trouble gaining a large following of people who were ready to depose Moses and put Korah in his place. Look carefully at the substance of the rebels' complaint in verse 3. All in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. And this, by the way, is a is a clear reference to a biblical promise. They're pointing to a biblical principle here. Exodus 19, verse 6, where God says to all the Israelites, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And Numbers 35, 34, I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. And those, by the way, were all vital promises that every person in Israel could cling to. They were a nation of kings and priests. They were, the Lord lived in their midst. And the complaint of Korah was based, therefore, on biblical promises. But the promises had been twisted out of context. Promises like those did elevate every member of that nation to an incredible position of grace and privilege. But promises like that don't nullify the divinely ordained authority structure that God sets up. Korah was misusing and twisting the promises of God to justify an unjustifiable rebellion. But for people lacking in discernment who heard this, just the fact that Korah referred to the Scriptures lent believability to his complaint against Moses and Aaron. That's how rebellion usually grows in the early stages. The claims and accusations are as believable as possible, often supported by an appeal to Scripture. And now look at verses 12 through 14, and take note of the complaint that the Reubenites, who were part of this confederacy, gave. Verse 12, and Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land that is flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. In other words, you want us to come just so you can poke our eyes out? You made all these promises about leading us into a land of milk and honey, and and what you did was take us out of a land of milk and honey and brought us here to this desert wilderness. Now, by the way, notice by verse 12, the triumvirate of three rebels from Reuben has already apparently been reduced to two. In verse 1, it was Dathan, Abiram, and On. Now it's just Dathan and Abiram. On evidently dropped out of the rebellion early on. One of the ancient rabbinical traditions claimed that On quit this rebellion because his wife talked him out of opposing Moses. There's no biblical evidence for that, of course, but it's an interesting possibility and certainly a credible suggestion if his wife was anything like my wife. (laughs) She talks me out of a lot of trouble. All right, we are going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's sermon by Phil Johnson on 
Korra's Rebellion. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Gibberish is not one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could, well, <laughs> make you think that Korah's rebellion is an actual thing that's still going on today, because it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you pick. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's sermon from uh, Phil Johnson on Cora's Rebellion. Here we go. But in any case, it does seem that from this point on, Owen is no longer involved in this confederacy. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the narrative. But notice, Dathan and Abiram make this complaint against Moses, that Moses had brought them out of the land of Egypt, promising them a land of milk and honey, and now the whole nation was simply wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness. Was that true? Well, strictly speaking, yes, but it wasn't the full story. It was the rebellion of the people that was responsible for keeping them in the wilderness. This wasn't caused by any deficiency in the leadership of Moses, the wilderness wanderings were a judgment of God against the nation for the sin of rebellion against him. And now Dathan and Abiram are proposing more rebellion as a solution to the problem. Such is the deceitfulness of the human heart in captivity to sin. They had forgotten the real reason they were wandering around aimlessly. Or more likely, they never took seriously the threat of divine judgment. But notice this, they're pretending to seek the good of the nation. And their complaint is believable, and it seems reasonable to the natural mind. They claim to be concerned for the whole nation. The truth is, their real agenda was something far more selfish than that. And this is the third mark of the typical rebel. Number three, there's always a deeper agenda. There is always a deeper agenda. There's evidence in Scripture that Korah's real concern was not the good of Israel, but his own personal status. In fact, let's see if we can get to the heart of why he rebelled. Remember that in the passing of the inheritance from one generation to another in Israel, it was generally guided, the principle that guided it was known as the law of primogenitor. The law of primogenitor said that the firstborn son was to receive a double portion of the family's inheritance. And the reason for that was to preserve the riches of a family so that family lands and family businesses didn't have to be divided up and parceled out every generation. And it gave the firstborn son a wonderful privilege, but it also placed him in a spot of great responsibility. The eldest son then became the head of the family when the father died, and the responsibility for spiritual leadership and the family welfare and the preservation of the family fortune, all of that fell on him. And yet, you know this from biblical history, several times, as in the case of Ishmael and Isaac, as well as the case of Jacob and Esau, God himself reversed the natural order and chose the younger over the elder, as it is his sovereign right 
to do. And here's the remarkable thing about Korah's rebellion. All of the primary ringleaders, the people who are named here, may have felt that they were unfairly passed over when younger relatives were preferred. Every one of them had reason to feel that way. Take Korah, for example. I mentioned that he and Moses were cousins. Both were descendants of Kohath. Exodus 6.18 indicates Kohath had three sons. The eldest was Amram, father of Moses and Aaron. Kohath's second son was Izhar, Korah's father. And the youngest son in Kohath's family was a man named Uzziel. Numbers 3 records that the numbering and organizing of the, the Kohathites went this way. In fact, keep your, keep your finger or marker here in number 16 and turn back. It's not very far to Numbers 3 for a minute. And look at verse 29. The clans of the son of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle with Elizaphan, the son of Uzziel, as the chief of the father's house of the clans of the Kohathites. In other words, after Moses, you know, was appointed leader of the whole nation, then a leader of the Kohathites needed to be appointed. When that person was chosen, it was Korah's other cousin from the youngest branch of the tribe. And Korah undoubtedly felt that he had been unfairly passed over. And furthermore, Korah was the firstborn son in his family, and yet Aaron, who was the younger son in Moses' family, was chosen over all of the Levites to be the priest in all Israel. So Korah may have felt doubly slighted. He didn't get Aaron's job when he thought he might be in line for that, and he didn't even get to be leader of the Kohathites because a younger cousin got chosen. So it's clear from the nature of this rebellion that Korah felt he had as much right to power in Israel as Moses. The Reubenites who joined Korah in the rebellion also had reason to feel they had been unfairly snubbed. Reuben, you know, was the eldest son of Jacob. And you may recall in Genesis 49, when, when Jacob was blessing his sons just before he died, instead of pronouncing a blessing on Reuben, he pronounced a curse. Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4, Reuben, he says, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. That was his father's blessing on him. And the tribe of Reuben then never became a dominant tribe in Israel. The, the fact that Moses, a Levite, had ascended to power over the whole nation instead of a Reubenite seems to have been particularly galling to the leaders of the tribe of Reuben. And so Korah found the Reubenites easy recruits for a mutiny. And here's the fourth mark of this sort of rebellion. If you're taking them down, number four, it spreads secretly before it goes public. It spreads secretly before it goes public. I alluded to this earlier. Korah and the Reubenites had evidently conspired quietly over some period of time before they ever brought this rebellion out in the open. You know, a rebellion like this does not spring full-grown into being. Influential people first shared their complaints with one another, and then having stirred each other up to become even more disgruntled, they began to infuse their discontent into the rank-and-file people of their tribes, and before long they had a large party of people who were feeding one another's complaints, and they drew courage from the fact that so many other people feel the same way. You've heard this before, right? I'm not the only one who feels this way. How do you know that? Because we've talked about it. We've gossiped about it. And so the root of bitterness that had sprung up in just one or two individuals originally soon infected multitudes. Now, if these men ever had a legitimate complaint against Moses, what was their first responsibility? To go privately to Moses himself. And yet it's obvious that they didn't do this. By the time word of this rebellion reaches Moses... There are already, according to verse 2, at least 250 influential leaders involved, and there's a multitude of rank-and-file people following them. So only after he had whipped the multitudes into a mutinous furor, Korah finally made his complaint known to Moses. Look at Moses' response, verse 4. When Moses heard it, 
he fell on his face and said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord shall show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The ones whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Now, Moses' reply to Korah is, is the model of humility and restraint. First, he falls on his face, and he leaves it entirely to the Lord to settle the differences between him and Korah. He doesn't challenge him to a duel or anything like that. This is the response of a truly godly man. He doesn't reply with an outburst of personal indignation. He doesn't debate with Korah. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't go on Twitter and assault him with accusations. He simply places the matter before the Lord, and he proposes a test, verse 6. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. And then he says, you have gone too far, sons of Levi. And he reminds the rebels that their uprising is a direct affront to God. It's not merely an attack on Moses. Verse 8, and Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you, and would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, It is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? See, God had given them a task, and it was no small task, to stand before the congregation and minister to the people in the presence of God, but they treated their own calling with contempt because they wanted that highest position. They acted as if it was a small thing to serve God in the role that had been assigned to them. Korah wouldn't be satisfied with anything less than Aaron's job. It brings us to another mark of sinful rebellion. Number five, the ungodliness of the rebels inevitably is manifest. They lose their self-righteous facade. I pointed out at the start that this sort of rebellion always begins by pretending to take the moral high ground. Rebels claim to be defending justice or righting wrongs, but inevitably their response manifests itself in ungodliness. You've seen this, I'm sure. People who claim they have been wronged think that they're now justified in, say, bringing a lawsuit against a fellow believer in violation of God's clear commandment in 1 Corinthians 6. Or disgruntled church members purposely spread strife and division that dishonors God because they think they've been wronged somehow. Rebellious people always pretend that they own the moral high ground. They'll recite laundry lists of wrongs that they claim they have suffered or observed as if suffering made it okay to do wrong. But Scripture never grants that kind of tolerance to evildoers. Suffering wrong does not entitle us to do wrong. David, you'll recall, was anointed by Samuel to to be the rightful king of Israel. He was anointed and Essentially, that's like the inauguration service. He was the rightful king of Israel, and yet Saul remained on the throne and pursued David's life with a demon-possessed vengeance. David, again, was the rightful ruler. He was God's choice for the throne, a man after God's own heart. And yet, because he was a man after God's own heart, he knew that rebellion could never be the means by which he took the throne. God never sanctions rebellion, even when the person in authority is completely in the wrong or even demon-possessed, as Saul became. Defiance and insurrection are never justified against God-ordained authority anywhere in Scripture under any circumstances. Even when we must obey God rather than men, we don't rebel, we suffer the consequences. When the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men, they were put in prison for preaching. It wasn't a rebellion. It was obedience to God. Now, notice how the Reubenites responded to Moses. I read verses 12 through 14 earlier, but I want you to look at those verses again and take special note of the sinful response of these men from the tribe of Reuben. Verse 12, and Moses 
sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? This is unbelievable insolence. This kind of open rebellion amounted to a treason. They're, they're accusing Moses of wanting to kill them or poke out their eyes. And he had no agenda like that. There was nothing that suggested he would do that. Furthermore, remember that these men had been witnesses to all the plagues God sent against Pharaoh because of his defiance of Moses. Had they forgotten that God used Moses to deliver them from the hand of their oppressors? And yet, notice, they're actually accusing Moses of wrongdoing for having brought them out of Egypt. That's what he did wrong in their eyes. They've forgotten the oppression they suffered there. And now in verse 13, they have the gall to characterize Egypt as a land that flows with milk and honey. You see how they've turned the truth on its head? Egypt was a land of garlic and fish and onions. Canaan was the land of milk and honey. But again, rebellion is the seedbed of lies and false doctrine. Now, I'll read a lengthy passage here. We'll follow the narrative starting in verse 15. And notice what happens. Verse 15, And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow, and every one of you take his censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, 250 noblemen who were in this rebellion, bring your 250 censers, you also... And Aaron, each bring his censer. And so every man took his censer. A censer, by the way, was a, a thing that held incense while it burned. Take your censer and put fire in them and lay incense on them. Uh, so every man did this and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Verse 19. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. And so they got away from the dwelling of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Quite a, quite a catastrophe there, isn't it? It's like some sort of volcanic fissure opened up, swallowed them alive, And then the fire, volcanic fire, burned them up instantly. Now, if you saw that, I don't know about you, but I'd sort of be afraid to rebel. (laughs) Here's the sixth characteristic of sinful rebellion. It destroys undiscerning people. It destroys undiscerning people. Korah destroyed not only himself, but a number of others on the periphery who didn't have the discernment to steer clear of his mutiny. 
And that's how rebellion always works. Every sinful church faction I have ever witnessed has swept in people I love. Dear people, from a human perspective, often well-meaning people, people with sweet dispositions and kind hearts, but people who lack the discernment to see that this sort of rebellion is never how God fulfills His Word and accomplishes His will. God's judgment against Korah was severe in the extreme. This was an unprecedented thing. The ground opened up and swallowed him. Imagine if you were a witness to that kind of judgment. And yet, the rebellion wasn't over yet. And here's one more remarkable characteristic of evil rebellion, number seven. Rebellion breeds more rebellion. People of Israel witnessed what happened to Korah and his followers. Like I said, I would think that's the end of rebellion forever, right? But that was not the effect. The fires were still smoking and the ground was still settling when the next major rebellion broke out. Look at verse 36. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze, then scatter the fire far and wide for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of the meeting, that is the tabernacle. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them all in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, and put fire on it from off the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people, and he put, put on the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. I don't know what kind of plague this is, but it was sudden death for lots of people. Verse 49, now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. Now, I want you to notice that although Moses is always the target of the rebels' attacks, it's always Moses who stands between the people and God as their intercessor. He is in that capacity a picture of Christ. This is a living illustration of what Christ does for His people. Although He is the one whom we have sinned against, He is the one who intercedes on our behalf. And notice how prone the people were to misjudge Moses. I think we all have a sinful propensity to misjudge people who are in authority over us. It's one of the effects of the fall, I think. But I think this is a great reminder, especially for young people who are strongly tempted to rebel against their parents' authority. The fruit of that kind of rebellion is always bitter and destructive. And young people, not many young people listen to me, but if you are, you'll ruin your life if you allow your character to be shaped in your teenage years by rebellion and defiance. I've seen that happen many times. In fact, I mentioned that generational rebellion was was being glorified and promoted in my adolescent years. It was the hallmark of my generation. Some of my high school friends were not able to make it as adults because they never learned to submit to authority that God had placed over them in their youth. And that problem is even more profound for the millennial generation, the current generation who are transitioning into adulthood right now. 
There are multitudes who never learn to submit to authority, and they are inevitably going to have trouble finding or keeping employment. But that's, that's the least of your problems if you've cultivated the heart of a rebel. That sets you against God. God hates rebellion. And so this is a great reminder to all of us, particularly as members of the church for which Christ died, don't ever be tempted to rebel against those whom God has placed in authority over us. Someone says, yeah, but don't we believe in the priesthood of of all believers? Yeah, that was exactly Korah's claim, wasn't it? That God had made them a kingdom of priests. Why couldn't the nation be run by democratic rule if everybody was a king and a priest? And many people think that of the church, that it should be run by democratic rule, but that's not the pattern of church leadership set forth in the New Testament. God has ordered the church so that godly, gifted men are given the responsibility of leadership. The doctrine of the priesthood of the believer does not overturn God's appointed structure of authority in the church any more than it did in Old Testament Israel. And that's why near the end of the epistle to the Hebrews, the writer of that letter admonishes his readers with these words, Hebrews 13, 17, "'Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you.'" Notice the commands there, "'Obey, submit. Our leaders will give account to God.'" There's no room in those words to justify any kind of uprising or rebellion against God-appointed leaders. So what does that mean? Should we just blindly follow? Don't, don't people in authority ever misuse their, misuse their authority? Well, of course they do. Are men of God ever wrong? Certainly. Moses himself was wrong on more than one occasion. Does that ever justify rebellion of the sort that Korah tried to incite? No, it doesn't. It's never the right response to go around stirring up other people against duly appointed, God-ordained leaders in order to supposedly seek the redress of some wrong by fomenting a rebellion. Notice in Scripture that every such rebellion that ever occurs is always condemned. There's not one example of a righteous rebellion anywhere in the Bible. No such thing exists. Rebellion is always ungodly. What if we live under a wicked ruler? You know, what if the person in charge is Herod or Nero or Pharaoh? Scripture teaches that God himself will deal with the wickedness of unrighteous rulers in his time. He did that, for example, with Pharaoh. He punished even Moses when Moses sinned. And we're not to sit passively idle and silent when our leaders do sin, but the right response is the response Nathan took with David. He went to him and confronted him directly. He didn't organize a mutiny. Later, Absalom mutinied against David, but God judged him severely for it. Rebellion, Scripture says, is like the sin of witchcraft. That's 1 Samuel 15, 23. And it suggests that rebellion is as overtly satanic as the black arts. And that ought to give us reason to pause and think carefully before we are tempted to rebel, even if you've convinced yourself that by rebelling you are defending some high moral principle. Rebellion is never the high road morally. It may be the way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So where's the gospel in all of this? Well, again, you see in Moses a picture of Christ interceding for sinners, seeking redemption for the very people who were guilty of treason against him. In addition to that, Christ in his human life modeled a style of submission that is the polar opposite of Korah's rebellion. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the pattern we're given to follow. But more than that, in dying, Christ took the punishment you and I deserve. Even though he was holy, unstained, separated from sinners, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us 
that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And He graciously invites us all, as Moses did, to stand with Him, to separate from rebellion and unbelief, and to trust in Him. And He says that all who heed that call will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for those who are in authority over us, government officials and church leaders alike, all who are in high positions, that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, knowing that this is good and pleasing in the sight of God and our Savior. So give us servant hearts. We confess that our hearts by nature are stubborn and rebellious. We're prone to self-will and disobedience. But may we be like Christ, who learned obedience through what He suffered, And may we glorify you through that faithful obedience. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. So what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.